This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is Soleil Ho, the San Francisco Chronicle's restaurant critic. She's written for a bunch of food and pop culture publications like Bitch, Food and Wine, Taste, and Wine Enthusiast, and hosted podcasts like Popaganda and Racist Sandwich. Uh, Welcome. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. We have spent most of the weekend texting back and forth about (laughs) various queer roots, of which there has been substantial overlap, I would say. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know the idea before you brought it up. I think it's because I saw, but I'm a cheerleader when I was really, really wasted back in college, and I just didn't internalize any of the messages except, like, butts and skirts. Gotcha. I like that part. Yep. (laughs) You you got the gist. You got the important part. I'm sure that it is not original to that movie. That is where I first encountered that sort of question. Um, But I I, I don't want to imply that I think the 1999 movie, But I'm a Cheerleader, invented the idea of Queer Roots. Um, It may very well come from 1998 or even 1997, possibly even before that. Um, But I'm glad uh, that once again, the Addams Family is topping the list. Yeah, I mean, specifically, though, Addams Family values which was the sequel to the Addams Family movie that I watched over and over and over again when I was in middle school. And that's the one, right, where Christopher Lloyd's character keeps trying to get married and everyone's freaking out about that. Is that right? Well, he gets married to this uh, woman who's out for his money, um, mm-hmm. played by, I think, gosh. Oh, Joan is, Cusack. Yes. Yes, yes, her yes, name yes. Is Debbie in the movie, and she's so normy, and she puts him in a, in a light suit, and he wears a wig. It's just amazing. Um, and in that movie, Wednesday and, oh, what's his name? The, 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 her brother. Pugsley? Yes. Yeah, Pugsley yeah, yeah. go to, to camp and there's a reenactment of like the pilgrim Thanksgiving thing. Oof. And then Wednesday like sets this girl on fire and burns her at the stake. It's amazing. Wow. Well, I, it's definitely time to revisit some of this stuff. And, uh, I'm very, very excited to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, For now, since this is not yet just a movie recap podcast, um, (laughs) we should try to help people with their various struggles and problems in life, most of which boil down to, is there a theme this week? I don't know. I'm not sure if there's a theme this week. I kind of feel like it's it's family yet again, um, as as it so often is. There's only so many problems that people can have. Um, But I'm excited. I'm going to read our first letter because... uh, I like to mix it up sometimes. And so without further ado, I will read uh, subject surprising in-laws. Dear Prudence, I recently got married to my wonderful wife. Her family were there and mine were not. I have barely spoken to my parents after they turned on me when I came out. They went from loving to vicious, hateful, and violent overnight, saying they would rather have no daughter than a gay one. As a result, I have no time at all for parents who react badly to their children's coming out, even ones who react much more mildly than mine did. My wife's parents believed that they responded, quote, neutrally. But my wife used to cry every time they spoke. 
They refused to meet me until we had been dating for three years to make sure it wasn't a phase. I was friendly, and they were polite enough to me, and that seemed to mean the world to my wife. So I've remained friendly, despite feeling contempt and anger. I expected more frosty politeness from them at the wedding, but they shocked me. They were wonderful. After paying for a huge chunk of it as a surprise gift, they were then warm and affectionate to me at the wedding, referring to me as a new member of the family. Apparently, they were appalled when my wife told them about my family not being there, and they've wanted to make an effort to be better. My wife is overjoyed, but I am still angry. I do not want to feel this way and wish very much to forgive them and return their affectionate behavior, which seems to be continuing post-wedding. But I simply can't let go of my rage and disgust, only hide it from my wife and vent to my friends in private. Can you advise me on how to alter my extremely harsh feelings toward my new in-laws? I am worried about upsetting my wife and damaging a potentially good relationship with her family over old resentments. I think I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that we're starting with this letter because I feel like I often advise people who, who are at the point where they kind of need to cut off homophobic family. But I think this is actually not at all uncommon. And, and it can be really hard to figure out how to deal with um, family or, or in-laws who have genuinely turned a new leaf or turned a corner, I guess, um, but in a way that does not erase the past. And they often want to do that. They often want to just say, well, we're great now. So no point bringing up old painful stuff. Yeah, I have a lot of empathy for the letter writer here because, you know, um, this love and this influx of affection it could so easily be taken away mm-hmm. as well. And I could tell that they don't want to see their wife um, hurt by this again. You know, it wouldn't it be more devastating for this affection to be taken away when she's had a taste of it? Mm-hmm. And so I understand the cynicism. I understand, you know, um, how they can't let go of their anger and their disgust because if they do and they, they're vulnerable to that. They they and their wife could stand to be hurt again and much more deeply. Um, so I get that. I get yeah. that starting point. Yeah. And and I also just want to say I, I think that your anger and, and disgust also makes sense to me because um, the, the money was lovely. You know, money's great. And and the new warmth and affection is wonderful. And it seems like, as sometimes I think is the case when, like, conflictedly homophobic people catch a glimpse of what, like, full-bore homophobia does to a relationship that can often kind of jolt them out of their own shittiness of, like, oh, that's clearly awful. I don't want to go down that road. I'm going to do the opposite of what they're doing. And that's all to the good. But again, none of this, it seems like, has been accompanied by an apology or even an acknowledgement of the harm that their initial serious standoffishness and clear disapproval has caused. Like, that's still a full three years at least of I'm not going to meet you, I'm not going to acknowledge you, and your, you know, your wife crying every time she spoke to them. So I, I understand where you're coming from. And obviously, I don't think you need to, like, call them up right now and say, like, by the way, I'm still mad. But I do think that you need to be able to talk about this with your wife. And I think you have the right to. I think right now you're sort of afraid of ruining her happiness. But my guess is she also feels, in addition to the relief that her family is no longer trying to punish her for being gay, um, some like conflictedness about that sudden turnaround. 
And I don't think you're the only one feeling that right now. And so I think that there are ways to talk about it with her. And I, I agree. I think it's right to not open with your most cynical and bitter feelings. But I think to say, can we have a little time to talk about your family? Because I, I, right now, I, I still feel pain and anger about the way that they treated you for years. And I don't want to let that get in the way of the ways that they've truly changed. But it's also hard to see that change not come with an acknowledgement of what they did. Do you feel that way too? Does that make sense to you? Can we talk about it? Right. Like, I agree. I think that would be a great way to start. Um, but I also think, yeah, it's a lot to ask someone to forgive family that's hurt them in the past, especially family like the letter writer wrote who turned violent mm-hmm. in response to their child's identity and they're trying to be their true self. Um, but at the same time, and I, I think that that trauma is what's informing that perspective. But at the same time, I think the letter writer needs to step back a little bit and just really examine. And I'm not saying that anything is in one direction or the other, but really examine like how much that trauma is coloring the way they see this interaction um, based on the facts of what happened. Right. And I think to also... To try to set realistic expectations for yourself. So part of the pressure right now, I think, is coming internally. Like you said, I want to forgive them and return their affectionate behavior. That's a tall order. You don't have to do any of that right now. I think if your goal can be to talk honestly about what's hard for you with your wife and to be polite when you see your in-laws, that's kind of all you need to do. And um, more than that is not a, a, a job you need to give yourself. Um, and and to even if you need to say to your wife, like, I, it's going to take time for me. I can't jump in feet first with them. Um, I, I, I would have a hard time if, if we were to get together every month and never discuss those last three years. That would be hard for me. And to try to figure out what does she want from that? What are you capable of? Would there be times when she would want to go be with her family by herself that you would need to step back from? Um Is there a way in which she might, after a while, want to talk to her parents and say, like, mom and dad, I want to both acknowledge how wonderful it was that you helped pay for the wedding, how meaningful it's been that you've really come around. And I also just want to name the fact that for three years, you didn't come around. And that really, really was hard for me. And and, and it would mean a lot to me if you would apologize for that. Um, Again, not to say that you have to force her to ask for that. If she says, I'll never do that, you know, you can... Uh, revisit it later, but but to ask like where she where she's at on that because my guess is right now she partly just feels so much relief that it's better that she's worried that like if I invoke the past the past will come back, and so this also might be a good thing to discuss with a couples counselor at some point. You don't have to go right now. I know you just had a wedding; it was probably pretty expensive, even if the family paid for some of it. But that might be helpful at some point down the road. Does that strike you as reasonable? Yeah, and she is. You know, the wife is so happy. And th- you see this pattern a lot with, like, hot and cold relationships. Yeah. Where, you know, when the f- when you're the person you're in a relationship with, be it a family member or a friend, runs cold, you're wishing for something a little bit more, some affection. And then when they finally give it to you, you're just overjoyed and you can't see anything else and you forget about the coldness. You're so quick to forgive when you're stuck in that sort of dynamic. And it sounds like that. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. So, you know, you only recently got married. It's only pretty recently that they've started acknowledging you and being warm to you. Don't rush yourself um, to feel at ease with this new situation. Be polite. 
be as, you know, as warm as feels appropriate and comfortable. You do not have to immediately let your guard down. And, and you know, just remind yourself that sharing your feelings with your wife does not mean that you're going to be totally venting to her, saying without any kind of filter exactly how angry you are. You can communicate the general lines of where you're at without making her feel like, I hate your family. They suck. I'll never really forgive them. Right? Like you can say, part of this is still hard for me. And that will be true without saying, um, I have no time for your family. I think they're just as bad as mine. I think this is hypocritical and insincere. And I hope that they all move to the moon. Um, <laughs> yeah. Give yourself time. Don't be too hard on yourself. Find diplomatic but honest ways to speak about this with your wife. Consider seeing a counselor at some point if you think that that would be helpful and give yourself permission to be friendly, but to keep them at arm's length. I think that's great advice. You get to do that. And yeah, I I, I just think in general, in my experience, oftentimes when people start to, quote unquote, get over their transphobia or homophobia, they want to give themselves maximal credit for what they do. And they want to spend a minimum amount of time acknowledging what they've done. And and that can be a challenge. And remember, forgiveness tends to follow apologies. Yeah. They haven't asked you for your forgiveness. So it's not incumbent upon you to offer them something that they have not asked for. And you can be friendly or polite to somebody without necessarily forgiving them. Choosing not to forgive someone right away does not mean that you are an embittered or a vindictive person. It's okay to say that's in the future if it comes down the road at all. And congratulations. I'm so glad that you got to marry your wife. And I, yeah, it can be really hard. I, I, I don't want to dwell too much on this, but it's hard when your partner is so relieved and overwhelmed at family acceptance. And you're like, but I still remember seeing you cry every time you talk to them. And I can't just um, forget that or pretend that it didn't happen or that it didn't affect me too. And remember that those feelings are there because you love her. Yeah. You don't want her to be hurt. Exactly. And that's, you know, you got to keep your eyes on the prize there. Right. And it's also okay for you to say ways in which that hurt you. Like, you you do have some grounds to talk about, these are my in-laws, you know. It, it, I, I understand that you want to center your wife in this, and I do think that that's appropriate. But, you know, this isn't just, like, a girlfriend of a couple of months. This is your wife. Like, you are now a part of her family in some ways, and you do have some standing um, to name your own experience and your own feelings. Um, I am excited to speak to the next question, and I do feel ready to move on if you do. Absolutely. Fabulous. So subject is, how do I start these things called relationships? Dear Prudence, I'm 29 years old and have never dated, and I just don't know where to start. I'm an individual with mild cerebral palsy, which has sometimes affected my confidence. I've come to terms with this, and I've gained confidence in recent years. But if I, for instance, use any dating apps, which I have sporadically tried, I don't want to give anyone a surprise. I've invented a false reason not to date, saying that I'm focusing on my education first. But really, I've always wanted at least one person in my life who's not a platonic friend or family member. I recently received my master's degree in rehabilitation counseling, and I'm looking for work in that field. I'm not financially stable yet, and I live with my parents. For medical reasons unrelated to my cerebral palsy, I'm not able to drive, so I rely on Uber slash Lyft and rides from friends and family. My friends have always told me that I will find someone, and that I'm a catch. But I don't know. Romance seems foreign to me. I've always understood logically that love can come at any age, but I don't want my first experience with love when I'm in my golden years. So at this point in my life, given what I've expressed, I'm asking for future reference. When I'm in a better, more stable place, how do I start, quote, romantic relationships? And what's your opinion on navigating disclosure of disability? 
The funniest thing of all is that my friends come to me for relationship advice because I am a neutral party and I know how to navigate friendships well. It sounds like this person has wonderful friends. Yeah. Who could uh, introduce them to potential partners. Mm. I think they're a great resource for that because they know the situation. They love this person, obviously, and they know this person's perspective on relationships. So they're able to introduce that to a potential partner, too. Um I think they would be an amazing start. Mm-hmm. You know, do you know anybody who's single? You know, who would wouldn't mind a little bit of like complication? Um, but you know, obviously, if these friends trust this person for relationship advice, they have a good head on their shoulders about it, and they're ready. Yeah, I think if you were to pursue that route, and I think that there's totally reasons to, um, I would frame it as like, hey, I I, I would like to date. Um, I would like a romantic relationship. I would like to get to know people. I also haven't done this a lot before. So there's a lot that I just don't know about. So if at any point you can think of anyone or you meet anyone who you think might be interested, please like let me know. Consider me when you're thinking about setting people up. You don't have to produce someone by next week, but I just want <laughs> you to know I'm available and interested. So if that ever pops up in your other friendships, think of me. Um, and, and that way it's not like everyone's now out on a mission looking for me, but you know that it's going to be going on in the back of their minds. I would say um, in terms of disclosure, it seems to me like right now you're thinking of it in terms of like something that I am obligated to share with people because they like have a right to know about it so that they can say no because I'm too complicated. I would encourage you to reframe that. Um, and I would say you there's there's no etiquette in terms of like, oh, you're obligated to discuss it. It is true that people are often rude and ableist. I hope you don't encounter a lot of that. If you do, it's not because you did something wrong by failing to disclose like the fact that you have cerebral palsy. That would just mean that other people were being rude and ableist, and that sucks. Um, so, you know, in terms of what you want to share with potential dates or early dates, if you are going on a first date with somebody um, and you don't want to share with them how you got there, you do not have to. It is a first date. This is basic like, what kind of movies do you like? Do you enjoy this restaurant sort of conversations? So that you can absolutely save for a third or a fourth date, in part because I don't think you want your entire first date to feel like you're you know, reciting a list of things you are worried they might not like about you. So that's what I would say about some of the more logistical stuff like living at home with your family or getting rides from other people. You can disclose that when and if you feel comfortable and you do not have to lead with it. If you are worried about going out with people who would react badly, um, either to your various medical issues um, or to the fact that you live at home, you can absolutely like, you know, certainly your friends will mention it, I think, if they're trying to set you up. And certainly if you decide to get on more of the apps, if you would like to lead with that, you can either put it in your profile and just say like, this is what I'm working with. If that doesn't work for you, keep it moving. Um, But if you don't feel comfortable putting that out there, and I can also understand why you would not want to, you can also say before you meet up, like, by the way, I have cerebral palsy. Just wanted to let you know so that you weren't surprised. You don't have to say that either. It's okay for people to experience like new things or or like I I, I, I I even feel like I shouldn't have used the word surprise there because again like that thing is like the implicit assumption underneath that is everyone has the right to expect of like able-bodied person on a date 
And I don't know that that is a standard you need to worry about upholding. Does that make sense? It does. Yes. Um, also, you know, I've been thinking about the, the the logistical stuff, too. You know, having to take Uber. Like, a lot of people do. I don't have a car. Yeah. I, I don't drive. And I, you know, it's not a big deal anymore. You know what I mean? To say, like, oh, no, I took a lift. The traffic was terrible. There's all kinds of excuses you can make up if you don't want to just dive ahead and tell them your whole life story. Most right. people don't do that on their first date anyway, like you said. People talk about the movies they saw or their opinions about, you know, Harry Potter. You know, silly things. Yeah. Because that's a really good way to judge how someone reacts to things. Right. What tastes they have that align with yours, that sort of thing. Right. Yeah, and I would add to that lots of people in their 20s, especially people who have been in grad school or are in grad school, live with family. Yeah. So that is not going to put you way outside the realm of, like, average 20-something experience. And there are a lot of places to make out outside of your parents' house. <laughs> yes. Restaurant alleys, uh, the park, you know, there's there's all sorts of situations that you get into that don't require taking someone home. Right. It's okay. Right. So I'll also say, for what it's worth, if the idea interests you and appeals to you, I know that there are several dating apps that are geared towards, like, people who deal with either chronic illnesses or various disabilities. And if that sounds like fun to you, um, if you're open to that, and if the idea of we will all be starting from the assumption that this is like normal and on the table, that would feel kind of freeing. You can do that in addition to other like kind of the bog standard dating apps. I don't want you to feel like I have to restrict myself to these ones because it will be easiest. I just want you to know that that is an option. You can literally just Google dating apps for people with disabilities, see what comes up, decide if any of them appeal to you. Um, if the idea makes you feel like, oh, I would feel really relieved and at ease and like I'd be able to expect a certain level of um, understanding, compassion, politeness, open-mindedness from people, that would be fabulous. And if part of you feels like, oh, I feel like I'd be siloing myself off and I'd feel awkward and self-conscious, don't do it. Um, but just know that that is an option to you if if you're um, interested in not having a lot of like, so here's something you should know about me kind of conversations. Right. And I think, you know, to go back to the friends if they are, if they live near you, if they're like IRL friends, go out with them, you know, and maybe tell them, okay, I'm looking maybe to meet some people. Would you mind like, you know, uh, talking me up to anybody who might seem kind of interested in hanging out with us? That sort of thing. You know, there's ways to do it that aren't creepy or overbearing. It's just like, it's like making friends, but, uh, you know, a little sexier. Totally. And yeah. And I think the last thing that I'll say is, you are very um, conscientious sounding. You're very worried about how my potential first dates react to me. I want to make sure that they are all comfortable. And that's great. You are also a person who is going on this date. And it is important that you feel comfortable. So I, I want you to spend at least as much time as you spend worrying about these other people's hypothetical comfort as you worry about your own and think about what are reactions that would hurt my feelings or that would make me feel disrespected, or that would make me think this date is over. Um, I, I think if you spend too much time worrying about the other people, my fear is that you will think, I can put up with anything, and it's always my fault if somebody else is rude, or surprised, or upset, or responds in a shitty way. And I just want to say, ask yourself before any potential dates, what could someone do or say that would make me think, I'm not going to have a good time, and I'm going to go home. Yeah. Because um, I think sometimes if you approach it from just this way of like, I don't want to be a quote surprise, then it's sort of like you think I should kind of apologize for who I am 
And if somebody treats me badly as a result of that, it's my job to be easygoing, flexible, understanding, super chill, not have feelings. And that is a recipe for letting yourself be hurt. And I don't want that for you. So, And you should feel entitled to take up a little bit of space here, too. You think about what you want. Yes. Not just like what barbs you want to avoid. Yeah. But what qualities in a human you admire and that you would want in your life as a partner. And, you know, if when you when you think about that, think about how you can put yourself in view of those people. You know, um, you can meet a lot of people through volunteering for like political projects or um, work volunteering. I used to volunteer at a movie theater and I met so many interesting people who were mm. really into weird movies through yeah. that. Any of them could have been really great partners, you know. Um, that's one way to get your foot in the door. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll end with all this because your other question was like, you know, or not a question exactly, but I don't want my first experience to, with love to happen when I'm in my golden years. Even with all of this said, I cannot promise that any of this is a recipe for finding love. Um, I think the odds are good that you will be able to go on some dates if that becomes a goal of yours. But beyond that, there are no guarantees. You may go on some boring dates. You may go on some unpleasant dates. You may go on some dates with people who really like you and you don't feel anything. You may go on some dates where you're crazy about them and they just aren't feeling it. Um, beyond that, you know, dating is a crapshoot and a lot of it's out of your control. Sometimes it feels like going on a lot of very boring job interviews. <laughs> um, sometimes it feels really unsettling. Sometimes it feels like, how could I feel this way and you feel that way? Did we just go on the same date? Um, and I think that's just going to have to be something you feel your way through. It's chaos. It's a mess. I'm very excited for you to get into it. It's pure chaos. It's pure chaos. But yeah, yeah. Good luck. I, I I would love to hear from you too. So if there's ever a time when you, um, like give dating a little bit of a whirl and you just want to let us know how it's going, what's harder than you thought, what's easier than you thought, what you're enjoying, give us a buzz. Okay, I think I just read that one. Why is it every time I either read or don't read a letter, I instantly forget it? Like I go pure goldfish. <laughs> you read that one. Great. Then I'm not going to read the next one. Okay, great. Subject, withholding adoption information? Dear Prudence, I am doubly adopted, first as an infant and a second time after my adoptive mother died when I was two and my father remarried. My father's second wife is the only mother I can remember. I've always been comfortable with my past and have zero curiosity about my origins. The only difference between me and my peers was I had an extra set of grandparents. I honestly never felt the need to tell anyone that I was adopted until my current boyfriend asked me about how my grandparents figured into my family tree. I explained, and he actually got angry with me. We've been dating for six months, but have been friends for years. He accused me of hiding this, and then started to grill me over the course of several days. He started to tell various other people... And I got a lot of shock and even outrage from friends. I snapped after another friend started going off on me, not wanting to find my real parents. And I told her to shut up, that my parents were my real parents. I don't know if everyone is acting unreasonably or I am. Is this really that big of a deal? Everyone is acting unreasonably. Yeah, they're all being assholes. And I'm so sorry. Yep. Very straightforward. Your friends are being such jackasses. And your boyfriend? Is it a boyfriend? Mm -hmm. Yeah, your boyfriend sucks and you should stop dating him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think shock is, I'm, sh you know, that's reasonable. But I think if you're like, oh, wow, that's such, that's so interesting. And your parents are so cool for like, you know, I don't know. I just, 
I don't know. I mean, mild Pe- surprise is the most I'm actually going to permit on this one. Mm, it's that's fair. just, uh, you know, wow, I didn't know that. Thanks for letting me know. If you ever want to talk about it, I'm here. That's it. Mm-hmm. Like, you didn't actually, like, everything is still true, right? It's right. like, my parents are still my parents. I was still raised by them. I still call them mom and dad. It's not like, by the way, those were actors I hired. Like, then I could maybe understand yeah, his response. Sick. I'd but, love that. like, this is fucking bullshit. He got angry at you for being adopted and not talking about it constantly. Well, it doesn't really affect your life that you're adopted. Yeah, you're like, not like a Dickens character. And, and just, yeah, like, you're not interested in finding out more about your biological family. So it's not like this is going to change your family at any point. You've never known a family but this. Like, this is the only mom you remember having. Like, it's a it's a footnote in the story of your life. That's why you don't talk about it a lot, because it's not especially important to you on a daily basis. That's kind of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's certainly good of you to disclose, you know, when he asked. Um, and that was very generous of you. But then he, like, started telling other people. Yeah, that's without, awful. Like, because he was angry in order to make you feel ashamed and to get other people to put pressure on you. And I got to say, that's really worrying if that's the way he responds to feeling surprised. Or left out. Yeah. Of something that has nothing to do with him. Right. Yeah. It, it doesn't bode well for your friends, too. And I hope that... You have other friends who responded a bit more reasonably and um, positively that you could talk to about this as well. Like, oh, man, because put yourself, I'm trying to imagine the situation of the boyfriend who and what he possibly could have said, you know, um, to his other friends who were just maybe because he's like, I'm so mad. And I found out that this per- my, my partner was adopted. And it wasn't that horrible that they didn't tell me. Yeah, because it's just like, how did that affect you? Exactly. Yeah. Can you name anything that this changes? Like, the only reason he would accuse you of hiding this and feel this upset is because, on some level, his thought process was, I can't believe I treated these people like your real family. Mm. Because I know that they're really not. And that, to me, says everything about... completely out there. Yeah, his ideas about adoption and realness. Um, He has done you a favor of showing you what an asshole he is. Please dump him immediately. Um, And with regards to your friends who have been angry at you, to just go back and say, like, this needs to stop right now. Um, I would like an apology. Um, I did not tell you this information. This was told because my boyfriend was angry at me. I haven't shared it with you because my family is my family. And you need to apologize and not bring this up again. And if they can't do that, I'm so sorry. I hope you still have a couple of friends left over. But if you need to start over, you need to start over and find people who will not treat you like this because these are not going to be good friends to you if they can't apologize and let it go. Yeah. like it. They don't have any right to treat you like a freak show. And that seems to me from this letter how they're treating you. Right. And it's just like, what is this? Like the 30s? Like I feel like adoption is fairly commonplace. I feel like people talk about it to varying degrees of complexity. I feel like it's fairly well known at this point that some people who are adopted feel very curious about their biological family. Some people don't. It's kind of their call because it's kind of their experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so all this nonsense of like, you've been hiding it. It's like, no, it's just not a big part of my life. And yeah, the, the idea that it's your obligation to tell everyone, like, just so you know. This isn't really my family. I'm really adopted. I just find that really gross. 
Yeah. And um, it seems like they're trying to put you into a narrative that they want to see. Right. Right. Like the adoptee trying to find their bio family and having a tearful reunion. Like that is a story that we're fed mm-hmm. about those relationships. And you don't have to fit that narrative. You can have your own. Yeah. And your own truth and the own, you know, and the way that you want to live. So do that. If they can't deal with it, fuck them. Yeah. I'm really, really sorry that you got this response from so many people, but it's not a sign that you did anything wrong. It's a sign that, unfortunately, you have a number of people in your life who are real assholes, and I'm so sorry. And I hope that future groups of friends and future partners are not assholes and hear things like, oh, yeah, by the way, my parents uh, adopted me when I was a baby. Um, And they say, oh, interesting. Thanks for telling me. End of conversation. Yeah, double thumbs up. Or like, Oh, are you ever curious about, you know, anything else about your biological family to which you could say, nope. And then they would say, oh, great. Thanks for telling me. Want to get dinner? Yeah. That's the level of response you should be getting. Right. This guy. So Uh, how about those Avengers? That's also a good uh, response. All good. I guess if you want to talk about those Avengers, (laughs) you certainly do not have to. Okay. So this next one, I am eager to advise because... Uh, I think this is a real clear-cut case of you are being way too hard on yourself. But Mm. So here we go. The subject is stuck in drag at work. Dear Prudence, I'm a 23-year-old recent college grad living in a large city. I'm a writer, but that doesn't pay the bills, so I've worked at the front desk at a small museum in a hip district for about a year now. I have a desk near the entrance, greeting guests and helping out with various administrative tasks. A security guard sits next to me. Throughout the day, we sometimes chat and are often joined by maintenance workers and the facilities manager. I find it generally unfulfilling and am seeking other employment, but it's fine for now. It's been an eventful year in at least one sense, though. After decades of repression and shame, I've finally accepted that I'm a trans woman. It's hard to express how joyous and what a relief this acceptance has been. I finally feel free and capable of choosing my own path in life. It's glorious. I came out first to my girlfriend, who's thrilled, then some close friends, then to my family, except for a couple of relatives. Everyone has been supportive. I hope to start medical and social transition soon. Unfortunately, that's on hold until I either find a new job or solve the issue at my current one. Every single security guard and maintenance worker harbors a deep, dark disgust towards trans people, and trans women in particular, which they express to each other and to me in some really horrifying ways. I don't engage, but I also don't say anything. I worry that they'll turn on me. I know that my state has strong anti-discrimination laws and that reporting these guys to HR would be a pretty simple matter, especially if I said I was going to begin transitioning soon. However, aside from being a closeted trans woman, I'm extremely privileged. I'm white and my family has money. These other guys are mostly men of color from working class backgrounds. I know some of them are supporting families. Speaking to HR, I worry, may cost these men their jobs, and I really don't want that to happen. On the other hand, I'm not guaranteed to get another job soon, and my emotional state is really suffering from not being able to come out publicly and begin my transition. Plus, maybe I have an obligation to any trans people who might take my job in the future to speak up. Is it morally okay to mention this to HR, and would there be a sensitive way to do it? So I just, like, I'm so sorry that you are in a position right now that you're questioning whether or not it would be morally okay to mention to HR that you work with people who have made it pretty clear that they hate trans women before your own transition. Like that you're worried about that is not a worry you should have. Um, They have, if nothing else, like they have made it pretty clear that they would 
potentially be violent towards you at work if you were to start transition. Um, you are under no obligation to suffer threats, mockery, acts of violence, the intimation of violence, uh, simply because of like any sort of general sense of like I'm worried about white privilege in general or I'm I'm worried about the fact that like my family is is well off like that's not the question here um and and it's not like oh well if you're this amount of working class you're allowed to be that amount of transphobic that's not how like class solidarity works that's not how um that's not how you need to think about yourself the the question is should I talk to HR about my transphobic coworkers? And the answer is yes. And I also just want to stress, I think even with those robust anti-discrimination laws, the likelihood that your entire like maintenance staff would be fired rather than like given a talking to first, I, I think you're kind of catastrophizing here because you're so worried about like all of your potential privileges um, and not at all about your very real vulnerabilities. So... Yes, report it immediately. Um, tell them that you plan on considering transitioning at work and that you need a lot of support in place before you would be able to do that. Express your concerns. Ask for help. You know, figure out what what laws are on your side and, and protect yourself. Sure, for the sake of other potential trans people at work, but also because you deserve protections as a trans person all by yourself, um, regardless of what other privileges in life you may have. And yeah, again, I, I really think it is very unlikely that HR's first response is going to be, we're firing everybody. I think the first response is really going to be, like, we'll do some more training. We will talk to people one-on-one. -on -one, we will make it clear, like, what behavior will and won't be tolerated at work. And then if these guys choose to prioritize their transphobia over their employment, that's a choice they're making. Whew. <laughs> right. I think... What you're doing by reporting this to HR is also starting a paper trail. Yeah. And getting them to, you know, if they don't already have these protections in place as company policy, to make them and, you know, make it happen and actually enforce them. And you are you will be able to be in a position to see how well they're enforced and hold the company to account. Right. Because that is how, that is how non-discrimination is practiced, you yeah. know, throughout, like, the corporate world, throughout the world. Um in the U.S. at least. And um, so, you know, if something happens, then you can say like, okay, I reported this already. Mm -hmm. And so what are you going to do about it? Mm -hmm. So it's not just holding these people to account, but also the company that is supposed to, you know, uh, take care of you according to the law. Yeah. I think that part's really important. Um, so yes, it will help future trans people, but most importantly, it will help you advocate for yourself and your rights as an employee of this company. Right. And just, again, anybody who experiences some other forms of disadvantage or oppression that does not then entitle them to, like, 30% extra transphobia, that doesn't, <laughs> like, actually help them with any of the problems that they are facing. Um, and and it, that's just not how um, – that's just not going to be a good or a fruitful way of, of asking people to treat one another professionally and civilly at work. Um, so I would just encourage you to try to let go of that wherever possible and to remember that transphobia is a choice that they are making. They are choosing to say these, you say, deep, dark, disgust and horrifying 
um, forms of, of of conversation. So my guess is it's not just like, boy, I think trans people are kind of weird. Or like, I wouldn't date a trans. Like, I think it sounds more violent than that. Yeah, it sounds like it's kind of an obsession with all of them. It sounds mm-hmm. like they try to egg each other on. Um, it sounds like they're trying to communicate to anyone nearby, like, hey, if you're thinking about transitioning, we'll have something to say or do about that. Um, and you you deserve to be protected from that. They don't um, they need to do that at work in order to do their jobs. They don't need that in order to support their families. You have every right to be protected from threats of violence as a trans woman. Um, and you do not need to apologize for that or feel guilty about it. And I wish you all the happiness and safety in the world. You are entitled to that. You deserve it. Everyone deserves it. And I hope that HR responds robustly. And I hope that you are also able to keep up uh, the job search if you ultimately decide, like, I don't trust HR to look out for me in the way that I need. Um, And that you do whatever you need to do to prioritize your own safety, happiness, well-being, and transition. Right. And, you know, worst comes to worst, if you don't like this job anyway, there are other things you can do. You can, you are a writer, you you mentioned, and there are so many online copywriting Mm. um, services that you could sign up for and take piecework that just, you know, it doesn't use too much of your brain power either. You could just write about drills or random stuff um, and get paid for it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there are options, there are alternatives, especially if you, you know, you're a writer, you can monetize that and not have to show up somewhere. Yeah. that you don't have to be at. I, I do okay. have a lot of friends who have early in transition decided when they were able to, to prioritize um, freelance work that they could do from home in order to minimize the amount of time that they would have to potentially be around a lot of people whose views on trans people they didn't know when they were at a very like vulnerable, visible time. If that is an option for you, if that is something that you can pursue, I would certainly encourage you to consider that. Um, I also hope that you're, if you don't have other trans women in your life yet, I hope that you can find some soon or find a support group or, or other women who you can ask for help and advice who may have gone through something like this before. Um, you do say, I think that you live in a large city. So I think odds are decent that there's a trans support group somewhere in that city. And even if you go and you're like, I'm not nuts about everybody here and this isn't going to be a huge part of my life, just to go and ask for advice about how to deal with um, transphobia at work and, and what have what has worked for some of the other women there, I think will help you immensely. And I, I want you to be able to take advantage of every resource that you can. Um, and good luck. Please write back. I really want to hear from you. And another benefit, actually, to going to these groups is that they might have recommendations for places that are really good places to work for trans people in your city. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is uh, totally valuable. Um, and that's something that I've seen in some of the support groups that I go to. Um, so, again, I can't promise you if you go once, you're going to walk out of there with a brand new job. But I do think it will feel meaningful to talk to other people who have done similar things and also dealt with transphobia at work and to say, here's what worked for me. So... Our last one, um, which we do have time for. Uh, The subject is, mom thinks my ex-girlfriend made me gay. (laughs) And I just want to say, who among our mothers does not? I love this one. I love when you encounter a parent or a relative's kind of like half-baked theory as to why you're like gay or bisexual (laughs) or trans or, or whatever it is that you are. And it's always interesting to be like, oh, that's what you think it is. All right. <laughs> sure. Um, and, you know, I don't know. Maybe your ex-girlfriend did make you, make you gay. Who cares? Um, I don't care why anyone is gay. If you're gay, that's great. It doesn't matter. Um, or rather, I think people sometimes worry too much about why. And it's just like, doesn't matter. We're all here. 
Although the queer root conversation is so fascinating. I, I mean, I think it's much more interesting to look back in your own history and think about what were moments that felt compelling or instrumental um, or or like the beginning of something that would later take really important shape rather than I need to pinpoint the source of the gayness <laughs> to uh, like accomplish some particular end. That to me feels like, you know, I don't know why I have red hair. I just know I have red hair. The only reason I could imagine trying to investigate the source of that would be to like change it. Um, which is why I think I often get a little wary about like why, quote unquote, is somebody something. Um, anyways, dear Prudence, during a recent session with my therapist, I unlocked mostly repressed 15-year-old memories of my high school ex-girlfriend. My therapist labeled this as a trauma for me as it included deceit, betrayal, and some serious ghosting. This was in the early 2000s before we had a clever name for it. If it weren't for therapy, my question would probably just be about how to deal with this myself, but the problem here is really my mother. When I called my mom to talk about what I'd uncovered in therapy and to ask what she remembered and how we dealt with it at the time, I was surprised to learn that she thinks about it often and that at the time she and my dad kept a close eye on me to look for signs of depression. Now, literally half of my life later, she considers it, quote, the most significant event that shaped how you relate to women, which I take to mean I blame your ex for you being gay now. I mean, on some level, she's not exactly wrong. I mean, it was a significant event that shaped how I relate to people in general, not even just women. I don't trust people easily. I have big abandonment issues, and I've been known to hunt to catch people in lies. But that's anyone I try to get close to. Thank God for therapy. But I also know that I was gay before I dated my high school girlfriend. I just couldn't admit it. My mother's a very religious woman in her 60s who has clearly outdated views of homosexuality. I'm out to her and my father, but it's never something that we really talk about. I'm not dating anyone right now, so there's not much to talk about anyways. I live several states away, so our time together is pretty limited. Do I need to spend energy changing her mind? What responsibility do I have to convince her that I was born gay? And how would I even go about doing it? Hmm... You know, my first reaction to this, I didn't read this letter ahead of time, um, but I think you don't have an obligation if it's not hurting you actively. And, you know, it doesn't sound like you're hurt. Um, It just sounds like you're a bit bemused and just kind of like, well, I mean, she doesn't get it, but that's okay. Um, Just let it lie because she's also 60. I mean, there's not, and you are an adult and there's not a lot that she can do about this. It seems like um, they know what you're about and what you're doing. It's not like she's going to invent a hot tub time machine to take you back to 15 and fix everything. What's she going to do? It doesn't sound like she has a plan. It's just like she has an opinion. Yeah. I think it's hard. I definitely remember a point at which I was trying to explain one of my first serious relationships with a girl when I was still a girl and um, being asked, you know, in high school, you used to wear a lot of skirts and I've noticed that now you seem to dress more often in in pajamas. Is that connected at all? I'm just being like... (laughs) Like, a lot of, like, what? But also, like, I guess I can understand that if you didn't really think much about queerness before this and you're trying to furnish an explanation for why I'm different from the other people in this family, you would maybe try to come up with weird, convoluted, sort of, like, Lamarckian theories. (laughs) Um, But it is also – I just just think generally when people try to source somebody else's gayness or queerness, it usually just sounds totally bananas – Right. Because it is sort of bananas to try. Like, 
you know, why is anyone anything? Like, why do you like the kind of people that you like? I just think there's limited utility in trying to say, like, no, mom, I was gay because of the following hormone wash that I experienced in the womb. Like, that to me sounds as, I think that is as much a waste of your time as, like, well, this girl was really mean to you in high school, so now you're gay. Like, I don't want to put them on quite the same footing. I understand that for some people, they think that there's a lot of value in kind of, like, identifying um, the source of gayness, not in, like, interpersonal dynamics, but in something ineffable, something that can't be changed because then other people would stop trying to change it. I get that. I understand why people feel that way. I also just feel like it's all good. It's mostly just fine to be gay. So it doesn't really matter how you arrive to it. All of which is to say, yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I think that you don't need to worry tons about trying to change your mom's mind. If you want to, you can also just say, like, I'm kind of glad you shared that with me, mom, because I think I can put that fear to rest. I actually knew I was gay way before I met her. Um, that cat was already out of the bag. Um, maybe don't say the cat was out of the bag <laughs> if your mom's inclined to, like, make puns. But, um, you know, not not to say it with the goal of changing her mind if you feel like she wants to go back and forth about it. But if you want to just say once, like, I'm glad you said this so I had a chance to clear the air. I knew I was gay way before her. It kind of sounds like they have a pretty good, honest relationship, too. If this person is calling their mother to tell them about the contents of their therapy appointments. Yeah, well done. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. So maybe she is willing to listen. Um, at the same time, I do think that searching for the source yeah. is so often... A, mm, it's like Freud gone wild, where it's sort of trickled out. Like Freudian theory is trickled out into, you know, popular culture for decades now, the past century. And people don't quite know what to do with it still. You know, I think there's a little bit of like something happened. There was a trigger moment. There was um, an uh, like a primal scene and then everything changed. Um, whereas things are a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. And I just think I, I both want to acknowledge the ways in which that relationship was really painful. I also think that if you find it useful to use the language of trauma about this, you can consider exploring it. But I would also just say like it's, you know, Teenagers do ghost each other. They, they're they not yet fully equipped with, like, the, the fully grown emotional arsenal of a healthy adult. And, I, you know, I don't want to speak too much about what that relationship was or wasn't like for you because you've only shared a little bit of the outline. So, actually, I'm just going to stop myself there. Um, use the language that feels helpful to you. I'm glad that you're kind of challenging old assumptions that have protected you from things that you suffered or experienced as a teenager that are maybe not things that you face now. Um, and to just try to figure out what are good ways that I can speak to the scared, semi-closeted 16-year-old that still lives within me, and what are ways that I can remind myself now that I'm an adult and a different person and I'm not dating that same girl. But yeah, all that's just more fodder for future therapy. And and yeah, if you say that to your mom and she's like, sure, 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 but you kind of get the feeling she still thinks it was that evil lady, I, yeah, I wouldn't waste a lot of time trying to convince her of something. I, I would just say it once and then let it be what it is. And um, if you need to continue holding your mom sometimes at arm's length about that, that's kind of fine. But yeah, no, you don't really need to spend a lot of energy changing her mind. Um, you're gay. That's kind of a done deal. Unless she's getting ready to assassinate this woman in the dead of night in vengeance or something silly like that. I, I do think too often parents who don't want to admit that they have a gay or a bi or a trans kid want to find somebody else whose quote fault it is so they can kind of say, no, 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 I really knew my kid before all this happened and that was the real version of my kid and this version isn't. And you may want to say like, 
mom, when you say or imply that this person made me gay, part of what that tells me is that you think of the last 15 or 16 years of my life as solely a response to pain or trauma. That's not how I see myself. Um, This has been my adult life. And like, yeah, that relationship was painful in a lot of ways. And it gave me a, a lot of issues around trust and abandonment. But it did not like warp me from the like previously good version of myself. And, you know, if you want to get to know me now as a gay adult, I would love for that. But I can't accept your premise that I used to be something else. And then I was changed by like this evil witch. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then I was ruined. Because you're not. And that's the implication, even if she doesn't use that language. If it's like, well, when you were 15, you were this. And then this happened. And for some reason, it turned you permanently gay. <laughs> Obviously, the implication there is that you were normal and then you were ruined. And I think that's also hard because for a lot of us, if our first relationships were queer in environments where that was not okay, um, oftentimes as like 16, 17, 18-year-old semi-closeted kids in our first relationships, we are hurt or we date somebody who doesn't treat us well or we go through a very dramatic breakup. And I think sometimes if somebody is already predisposed to think of gay or bi people as being like inherently unhealthy it's sort of like there's the proof see this is an unhealthy relationship i don't know how to separate the bad behavior from the gayness and that is a lot to have to try to prove which is like it's hard it's like i just want you to understand that i'm sad about a breakup not an evil twisted breakup yeah i mean that kind of narrative is a lot easier i think for some people to chew on Mm -hmm. um rather than accepting that there's nothing they can do yeah Or, like, even if there was something I could do. Do you know what I mean? Like, I would not volunteer for, like, detransition therapy, even if I believed that it worked. Like, I'm good. I'm cool. Um, And and that, I think, is sometimes hard for other people. And, again, that's why I think there's sometimes a limit to how useful a sort of, like, born-this-way narrative can be. Because the implication is often, obviously, I wouldn't choose this for myself. If I could do something about it, I would be normal. But since I can't, we should all be nice to me. And I think we can do better than that. I mean, I also know that I'm not saying anything like new or unique. People have been talking about this for a long time. So um, anyways, anyways, the point is that roots are great. (laughs) It's great to have a root. It's great to watch roots. It's great to um, eat eat some roots. roots. Yeah. (laughs) I have some sweet potatoes that I've been meaning to roast lately. It's been too hot. Uh But it's kind of foggy today. So I was thinking I might. (laughs) You could boil them, make a salad. I don't often boil sweet potatoes. Oh. Have I been missing out? Would you encourage me to start boiling them? I like to. I think it's fun. Or microwave it. Okay. And then make sweet potato pie. I do love sweet potato pie. It is an extremely delicious pie. Mm-hmm. I um, also enjoy roasting them and putting tahini and soy sauce on them. And it's good. It's really good. Maybe a tiny bit of honey mm. to balance it all out, but maybe not. Think about it. <laughs> think about it um thank you so much for coming on the show today i feel like i was all over the place today uh i would just like to add a disclaimer that maybe all of my advice today was bad i feel weirdly self-conscious about it so everyone listening this week total mulligan everything i told you feel free to disregard or do the opposite i mean you're always free to disregard it so feel free to disregard this too or do the opposite (laughs) i'd like to know what the opposite of like letting your girlfriend breastfeed a baby would be force her to breastfeed that doesn't seem have the baby breastfeed on you oh my goodness so many so many different options (laughs) so many different 
nipple-based options. I think it's time for us to end this. I think I'm going into weird territory, and I should probably go have a glass of water and lie down. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This Thank is fun. Thank you so much for being here. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, you can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds. A minute tops. Thanks for listening. Here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. It's weird to me that this guy never names his baby. Like, he just keeps calling her the baby. And maybe that was just what came to mind. But the description that you give here is like, my girlfriend has a baby. And here's all the stuff that she does for the baby. And I'm just curious. You don't say much about what you do or ways in which you two have tried to approach this as a team. And so I'm wondering if kind of the first or only time that you're getting really involved about big picture stuff has been to say, so when are you going to stop breastfeeding her? I can understand why she might bristle a little bit. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod.